driving through Colorado in midsummer to early fall, you're bound to come across several roadside stands, all with the same sign and the same two words, Palisade Peaches. These booths are at every farmer's market and on the corners of many streets. Coloradoans, at least on the western slope, go nuts for these peaches. We buy them in bulk and share them with our friends. People still can them regularly, and they only come around once a year. That's what makes them so special. We look forward to the day the tents go up at intersections, and we talk about them when they're not available, which is most of the year. Palisade peaches are one of the few truly seasonal elements of my diet. They're one of the few things that I eat that isn't available to me year-round. This is a recent development in human history, and not everyone on Earth experiences this phenomenon of a-seasonality. But I do. I've been conditioned to forget about seasons when it comes to food. To eat whatever I want, whenever I want it. I can have tomatoes in January if I want to. And buying tomatoes in January may seem like a tiny, perhaps even an insignificant act. But in reality, it requires a massive operation to get those tomatoes from the field in which they were grown to the store in which I bought them. It takes petrochemicals and often immigrant labor and shipping networks and sometimes international trade deals and federal agricultural subsidies. Buying tomatoes in January is a logistical feat on a scale that's difficult to imagine. It's a testament to human ingenuity and our ability to impact our environment. It's also a deeply broken system that has done a lot of harm to the earth and those we share it with. The Watershed Way invites us to examine how we participate in, promote, and resist broken systems like this one. Does living without limits allow us to be a people of place? Does this way of living meet the criteria for naturalized citizenship in a certain place? Is buying tomatoes in January in accordance with my most sacred vows? These, of course, are questions that we must answer for ourselves, so I'm not trying to be overly prescriptive when I say this, but for many of us, the answer to those questions is no. So how might we change that? What would we have to do to live in right relationship to a particular place? Today we're talking about how the Watershed Way is influencing the foodways of a community in Taos, New Mexico. How they're trying to eat in ways that do meet those criteria for naturalized citizenship, and in ways that are in accordance with their vows. These are ideas that might be replicable elsewhere or they might inspire new ideas that are appropriate for a different place. If you've not joined us before, my name is Zach Martinez. I'm speaking with Todd Winward and Daniel Rhino Herrera. The theme for this podcast is the path to restoration. We're talking about walking a path to right relationship with the earth and our neighbors. In the first two episodes, we spoke at length about the theory behind the watershed way. For the next three episodes, we'll be exploring the practices of the Watershed Way and how the Watershed Way has changed and is changing the daily habits of those who make it their own. Today we're talking about food. In particular, how we might find ways to build a local food web 
that acknowledges the limits of a particular place and tries to live within them. How might this way of eating and growing food change us as a community? How might it change us as individuals? Those are our questions for today in this episode of the Path to Restoration podcast. ago, you wrote a piece called Toward a Bioregional Food Covenant. And as I was reading it, it seemed like it's almost like a, like a mini manifesto or this sort of imaginative thought provoker that suggested a creative way individuals and organizations might restore relation, right relationship, this thing that we've been talking about through this podcast, right relationship with the land and with people around them. And you start your essay with this really thought-provoking philosophical question. You say, to what extent can we humans learn once again to thrive within the bounty and the boundaries of our bioregions? And then you add another pretty chilling afterthought. If we're to survive much longer as a species, you write, many of us addicted to this unbounded affluenza need to make this question central to our lives. So my first question for you is, could you describe what you mean by unbounded affluenza? Mm. Yeah, it might make a little bit unpacking for most of us who grew up in what I would consider a cult of unbounded capitalism. NPR, uh, I think, was the one who coined the term affluenza. Hmm. And it really stuck with me because it means a sickness of being affluent Hmm. and the I guess it couldn't be more portrayed than in my own upbringing when I was not a rich kid, but I grew up in Southern California going to the supermarket with my folks whenever I wanted. And there was the sense that we could buy pretty much whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, however we wanted, throw it away without any thought about anything else. And then uh, do it again. Just this sickness of arrogance of specialness without consequence and this unbounded affluenza is sadly a a deep disease of the soul Hmm. and of perspective that happens when one has no limits. And so I think about the Domino's one touch satisfaction or the Amazon overnight or any of these things. And it's just leading us toward more and more unbounded affluenza that has no root in any place. And because we have the right for every place, we have no, actual place Hmm. so this idea then of unbounded affluenza as opposed to maybe the antidote of that would be place-based relational capitalism i think uh healthy relationship-based and place-based capitalism is at the heart of wonderful relationships and and entrepreneurial innovations Hmm. that's what i love doing so i i'm a huge capitalist but in a rooted, bounded, place-based, relational, honest, and sober way. And so, uh, you know, the, the question, to what extent can we humans learn once again to thrive within the boundary, bounty and the boundaries of our bioregion is a simple one of going back to what the land around us offers. 
And it's just a, I don't know, why does this sound crazy for me to talk? It's not that I'm crazy. It's that our system has gone crazy. Mm-hmm. And I love what David Orr writes about when he says something like, it makes far better sense to reshape ourselves to fit a finite planet than attempt to reshape the planet to fit our infinite wants. Hmm. It sounds like this question of almost like seasonality too, right? Where we can go to the supermarket, we can buy things that aren't in season, that get shipped to us from across. Never even thought about it, right. <laughs> like, yeah, we could just you can do it over and over again. <laughs> and I, I was just thinking a little bit about you know Psalm 104, which is a psalm that I really appreciate. Um, and it's where God is described as the one who is active in creation. And it goes on to talk about how God is a part of growing food for the people. And that this food that we consume from the earth is a part of the creative act. But one of the things that they mention in Psalm 104 is that God gives food in due season. So like this sort of divine seasonality is a part of the process of life that we were never intended really to be able to eat the food that is from one season in a different season. It is absolutely part of our DNA as a species and our DNA as a planet. Right. And it's almost like we've Mm. tried to conquer that. But yeah, I mean, you and I, Zach, uh, coming from a Mennonite tradition at this point, I just love those cookbooks that they had in the 70s, simply in season or Mm. more with less. They had it right. And I'm sad that most people have thought it was childish or naive or limited. But Rhino, your family's whole history was living in season and learning how to adapt. Right. You know, that was just natural. And it's yeah, it's such an abnormal thing. So yeah, you you talk about the Psalm 104 and that notion of everything in its season. You know, I love that Jesus's words were this notion of daily bread. When he 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 tells us all to pray, he says, "Give us today, Lord, our daily bread." The word daily bread actually didn't exist. It was his own mashup. And how it's translated in Greek, it has two words one that means about sustenance and one that means enough. And so it's really this, this strangely nuanced, almost magical phrase of enoughness for the day. Mm. Give us enoughness for the day, right? That, that's all we need. He's not talking about a freezer or refrigerator until next month. He's not talking about a bank account that goes into the thousands and thousands. He's talking about enoughness. Yeah, and that just sort of reminds me about the story of the manna in the desert. You know, we're yeah. told that if we, the people kept the manna, it was would spoil. Like it wasn't meant to be hoarded. It was just meant to be eaten that day. And, and that's, Jesus was looking backwards. And now we're looking backwards at both of those two traditions to give us wisdom for today, Zach. You know, so it's bringing the old in, into the new like that. Absolutely. So, but here's what I really appreciated about your essay, which is that instead of just keeping this discussion in the realm of philosophy and theory, which don't get me wrong, I love, but you, you go on to actually offer a suggestion about how we should change our habits. You offer this practical idea that might, you say it might incite a movement. It's something that you call the 2575-100 Bioregional Food Covenant. So could you tell me a little bit more about what that is and what that means? Yeah, well, Rhino and I have been working at this for a couple of years, but it uh, 
it also is why we're doing this podcast. That mm. we, we're not just theorists of telling ideas, but I think that's what might be our unique voice is that we've been trying to put these ideas on the ground. Mm. And so, yeah, we, we've done a few years together. Right now. Do you mind kicking it off here? It's a pledge that anyone can make. By the year 2025, I will serve 75% of my food from within 100 miles. Hmm. That's, that's pretty cool, but do you think that a personal individual vow like this can like make a big difference? Right. So I, a lot of people ask me that, and I, I ask myself that, of course, sometimes. And the answer is both and. Hmm. And of course, of course, it's little, right? It's me shopping for myself. It's my choices with my community. But in the faces of the crises we face at a global scale, yeah, it, it could seem ridiculously small. But but think again, and we're going to, I think, unpack that with you, is if a critical mass of us do this, if even if even 3% of Taos County did this, that would be 1,000 people hmm. acting together in a humble, promising way. It could change how humans live together on the planet. Hmm. I, I, I'm going to go into some of those ways, I think. Yeah, and I was just like, I could read the essay, right? But I'd love to hear... You talk a little bit about more about it here. What what are the ways they could go through and change the way we live? Of course, it would enrich local economy. Hmm. And I, I've been thinking a lot about COVID and feeling the COVID clarity that happens when you become aware of things that have been unveiled. And I mean, the local economy is deeply in danger, and not just local T-shirt shops or things like that, but local food producers. But just think if we did, it would demand new markets. It would create incubators for regional companies to grow and sell and distribute good food from within their communities. Hard-earned cash becomes slow money, circulating long, longer within the region, causing more healthy cycles of exchange for local goods and services. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right now, there are a few local growers and very little local food available in America because most of us don't demand it. Hmm. it. It's crazy how I've been conditioned to not, you know, and it only, what was it, six years ago, I think, when when we had a gas shortage. We had the gas pipelines, yep. trucks. Trucks couldn't come in the winter from Texas to give us our natural gas. And it was the first time I realized that we even got our natural gas from Texas. <laughs> and by truck, I was like, what? We get like truckloads of gas arriving. This, it just felt really weird. But we had we had shortages of, uh, you know, in, inability to work freezers and heaters at the grocery stores. And we had fights at the pumps. And it reminds me a lot of what's happening in the East Coast here in May Absolutely. With, with some of the crises that are happening. And so these notions of exposure of what happens if... You know, so this this idea of local people you can trust with local scale becomes a lot more inviting and it corrects what we call, you know, crazy consumption or, or unbounded affluenza. So sourcing much of our food locally means adapting to our watershed and letting it instruct us how to be. It means learning to live within healthy natural limits. It means no longer being able to buy whatever I want, whenever I want, right. or wherever I want without a second thought to consequences of pollution or pesticides or unjust work conditions. Mm. Yeah, this unbounded ability right now. Right. Yeah, this what you just said about learning within healthy natural limits. You know, it's it's almost like I would guess, Zach, 
you know, when you race, when you're trying to trail, be a trail runner, you try to work within healthy natural limits. You're not trying to do something twice as far as what you can do. It's, it's the same kind of Sabbath or modest limitation that gives us this freedom within limits, I guess, is what I'm learning. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the unboundedness. Mm. Well, and it seems to me like, like and this economy is just sort of wasteful and it, and it just consumes so much energy on the backside of things that we just, that we can't even see. We just sort of take for granted that, that things are going to be there. And we're talking about the, the true cost, right? Yeah. I mean, like it just blinds us to what's really happening. And I was just thinking about when you were talking about the gas shortage, I mean, like many of us were pretty shocked when we saw empty shelves at the beginning of COVID because people were panic buying. And this idea that, you know, that was just this this very rare glimpse in an American mindset of the possibility of not having enough. When, when like everybody else on the entire planet is used to not having always everything every every moment of the day, but for us it was like, oh, shock! What? Yeah. What are we gonna do? Yeah, and I think that was another thing that really sort of like made me think about your essay was that like this isn't really all that strange it's in fact the way the vast majority of the earth lives and it and you even said this was what was inspiring about it was that like it's possible because it's happening and it happens all over the world right and we talk about seeing our region as rabbi mama earth needs to teach me how to live better again and my region needs to teach me Mm. this is the good way to live you know Mm. stand at the crossroads and look Hmm. ask for the good way like it's back there we have all this historical knowledge that we pretended isn't right hmm. you know it it just sort of reminds me of something i heard in seminary um when i was doing some research for my master's thesis which was on food and how how it relates to our theology but i learned about something called ground cherries which i didn't grow up around but it turns out this is one of the cash crops of my region which is that almost every house had a kind of like a sweet tart cherries that would grow in their yard and they would it was really important to them but it wasn't particularly flavorful um it was a good nutrient source but it fell out of vogue in favor of like fast green lawns um and so like we just have this history of trying to adapt to what grows and what's available to us in season and in our region going back to that quote yeah what if we can adapt ourselves to a finite planet Instead of trying to have the finite planet adapt to our infinite lusts and wants, right? right. <laughs> and so, like, I think what you said about nutrient-rich is that actually by buying local, in general, I think it tends to improve our individual health. Hmm. You know, it, like that notion, like, you, you know, do you want these pumped-up cherries from the supermarket or can you get nu- nutrient-rich, dense cherries from there? It it may not be a fair comparison to think about like kale or say Krispy Kreme, <laughs> but, but it isn't a snack option, <laughs> you know? And I guess I need to, I need to get off of my high horse of needing everything to be easy, comfortable, delicious, and full of bacon essentially, <laughs> you know, and, and imagine, but the, the point is, you know, when communities essentially peer pressure each other in hmm. good ways, and they encourage each other to eat food produced off the land, better health is likely to develop. I'd say, you know, affordable access to farm fresh food is indeed a promising antidote to so many of society's illnesses. Hmm. As Todd says, you know, we have to change our taste buds, you know, to be able to grow Hmm. and love what we love to eat, what we grow. I have to say, you know, changing my taste buds has been a challenge, but so well worth it. I mean, now I can play with my kids, play with my grandkids, 
you know, mm. enjoy riding my bike and, uh, you know, not have so much hard time walking around. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd say one of the, one of the case studies for me is chard. <laughs> chard is something we, we can kind of grow out of our ears around here. It's, right. it's the only green leafy vegetable that has maintained a root base. I've, I've been saving seed uh, for eight years of chard. And now I have like these hydra monsters of chard <laughs> that, that can stay hunkered down over the winter. They're the first things to pop up hmm. here. It is early May. And I've been, I've had six harvests of chard already, but like chard with eggs, Asian, Asian chard, uh, chard with, with cream cheese and, and, uh, feta I had the other night, pasta, pasta with tomatoes and, and Parmesan cheese and, and wilted chard. So I've been, <laughs> I've been trying to eat it twice a day. I'm not going to lie. Good. Um, but yeah, like chard is my friend, you know, can I, can I learn to be happy with that? I'm trying. It's making me smile so far. Good. <laughs> Yeah, but I know you. You mentioned though your dad's sopapillas to me before. Yeah, talked about your you know papas and huevos from your grandma and like this is love that's been given to you too. This is culture, right? Not just agriculture, but culture. And and I guess that's that that tell us about that struggle between like doing what your family has taught you and making new choices. Yeah. You know, having to you know change my taste buds and. Having to cook different and eat different, it's, you know, like I say, it's really been a challenge. But, uh, you know, what if I could make my dad so papillas with wheat flour, you know, that we source locally, hmm. you know, or, or be able to, you know, get our fresh eggs from out in the chicken instead of going down to the store and buying them. Hmm. But, you know, like I say, just learning how to eat what we grow is going to be well worth it, you know, 25 75, 100. Well, that's, and so, you know, I think what one of the things we're learning is we can't do it alone, Zach, right? Mm. That this is a noble idea, but it was fun that Tilt, so like you've often been in, you know, I like that at least it, it makes me think that you like what we do here at Tilt because you often <laughs> are asking questions or telling us you like our programs. One of the cool things we were able to do last year was uh, we did our second summer Watershed Way Institute, mm. and it mm. was a back porch, back porch training program. And uh, Rhino and his wife, Audra, taught us how to make homemade tortillas. And mm. yes, it was from processed flour, but there were no chemicals. There yeah. was just, you know, straight up natural ingredients that they showed us how to do. And so we learned from his family some traditional stuff. Another friend of ours, Chris and Elena, they taught us how to do whole wheat sourdough bread. Um, and then we also uh, taught, you know, how to deal with um, foods like kale and kohlrabi and, and chard and greens that you might not be used to. So teaching each other and lifting each other up and calabacitas and, and, uh, right. you know, knowing that there's purslane on the ground, like you said, the ground chair, like purslane is everywhere. And it's, it's something that the traditional Hispanic meal of verdolagas is something that I've never tried before. Mm -hmm. So right. verdolagas. Yeah. We learned mm -hmm. to adapt. Right? right. And like, what else did the people do before us other than be like, huh, what can we make from this? What can we grow in this land? Yeah. <laughs> but the 25% is key. We're not saying you must only eat things local. Right. You know, so I, I just want to add to that, that like, this isn't a path of depression, depression, ethically based misery we're talking about. This is a <laughs> joyful path. You know, Definitely. I think there was an author named Scott Russell Sanders who said, Right now, the environmental movement is about as sexy as a wet used tea bag. <laughs> and like, do things because you have to, or they sh you mm. should. You know, in no way is this a taste bud like diminution that you must be miserable. The, you know, the twenty five percent piece that isn't 
part of local food. I still want my chocolate, my coffee, my fine wine. I don't want to give those things up. And this isn't meant to be a threat. It's no caravan of despair, like Rumi would say. This is a joyful ride of self-discovery and community discovery. Mm. To me, I don't hear any sort of like browbeating in what you all are talking about. And I think that's what's so interesting about this conversation here is like I'm sensing a lot of joy. I used to think that I didn't like tomatoes. Um, for a long time growing up, I really thought that to me, I didn't like tomatoes. But the the reason was that is because I only have ever, ever had tomatoes from a grocery store. Um, and then I tasted a tomato that grew in my garden. And I was like, well, f- well, first of all, this doesn't taste like the tomatoes that I was used to. And second of all, I was like, I actually really enjoy tomatoes. And so it almost seems like what you're inviting us into is a fuller life. It's not It's not a diminished life in any way. We're inviting a fuller life. Well, and tomatoes, you know, one poet says that tomatoes are like summer made flesh. I mean, it is just the essence of summer to me. I just love it. But yeah, so, you know, in a limited palette as as an artist on the land, I've found that I can grow thousands of tomatoes in my life, in my backyard. Mm. (laughs) I can grow hundreds and hundreds of heads of garlic. I can grow my own corn, I can grow my own onions, I can grow my own squash, I can grow my own barley. And I've learned that barley, like we were, Rhino and I were harvesting barley by hand last year with like kitchen knives, you know, cutting and and harvesting it from 80 feet off the kitchen door and then, you know, threshing it together. And then we've learned we can use it like rice, like you can cook Mm it and substitute it for rice. I never knew that about barley. I always thought it had to be ground into some sort of flour to make some sort of unappealing bread. But I'm like, what, wait, why don't we just eat it straight up mm-hmm. and putting some seasoning into it? And then it's you get past the rubbery stage, you cook it a little bit longer than rice. And then it, it's like, wow, whole grain food, 80 feet from my back door. It's grown, hand processed, raw. It's just a beautiful way of finding six or eight things you can grow in your own garden and then adapt your taste buds. Mm-hmm. You know? When I started growing food that locally, 80 feet off my back door, I realized how much, how dependent we normally are on petroleum, mm-hmm. packaging, and then pollution, right? Cur- currently, the majority of mega food from mega chains travels like a thousand miles or more, often crisscrossing our own continent before coming to our stores, as opposed to 80 freaking feet, right? <laughs> you know, and what that would do, right? Massive amounts of petroleum are used to improve soil, (laughs) grow, process, store, preserve, package, and deliver food that we could be grown and transported within a few miles of our home. Hmm. Reduce travel, storage, means reduce packaging and pollution. And then using poop, right? Right? We're we're regularly using poop in the fields, animal, and sometimes my own, but I'll get into that (laughs) another time. Right. But yeah, like why use poisonous toxins uh, or, or petroleum to supposedly improve the soil? Yeah, so we're well, finding these local local solutions that just make some sense. Well, it's interesting too when you talk about this idea of bioregionality. Like part of the things that you do in your own bioregion affect people outside of your bioregion. I'm just thinking about the amount of nitrogen runoff that goes into the Mississippi and then runs into the into the Gulf of Mexico and then and then mm-hmm. creates dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico because the algae plumes suck up all the oxygen. Collateral damage, we call it, in war, and we don't even think about it like that. Yeah. 
It's agricultural collateral damage. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. So I'm interested in this, and I'm wondering, so what if community organizations took these bioregional food covenants and committed to healthy, local, affordable food for everyone? Well, it could build basins of relations across race and class. Hmm. Bowman writes that everyone on the planet lives in a basin of relation. Everything we do for work, play, school, shopping, farming, recreation, and so on occurs in a watershed somewhere. <laughs> somewhere, right? right? Right. What if those who could afford it signed on to a bioregional food covenant, not only for themselves, but for another family as well, or a neighbor mm. on the other side, mm. or maybe down the road. That everybody's connected. That everybody's yeah. connected. That's like that motto that we have, you know, do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. Absolutely. You love that. Right? Yeah, so like, yeah, what if, it's interesting, Taos Pueblo this last year at Red Willow Farm, they really had to take care of their elders in COVID and they adapted, yeah. they changed and they knew but they started outsourcing. I was able to sell them um, some early season arugula and chard uh, when they didn't have greens yet for their mm -hmm. elders. And they could outsource and they had the funds to do it. And then other times they could then sell back to the larger community. But really for them as a sovereign nation, they're taking care of themselves and they're building the infrastructure to bring food to their people. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And it's like, well, what if, why don't we all think of ourselves that way? Right. <laughs> why are we so disconnected? And this notion of, I don't know. I feel like churches and schools, especially churches, just because I guess they, they're so dear to my heart and they've gone so far away from what's possible. Churches are no, no longer communities of physical need so often. Hmm. What if they bound, banded together, you know, hmm. united in common cause about food for everybody? And they could be in, you know, we have this concept of a CSA that's been around for 50 years or more of community supported agriculture where one individual like me pledges my money to one farmer for the season and so I pay $500 or more up front to get bags across the whole week the whole summer I mean well what if what if 40 or 400 families did that from a church and it wasn't a CSA uh, the way we know it now as community supported mm. but rather congregational supported agriculture this kind of a bioregional food covenant by a community to a farm community would be so powerful, you know, but when different people of different classes find a common cause, those differences can unite together. And so the notion of being our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, or caring for the widow or the orphan, we do yeah. that through food. Why? Let's, let's do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it seems like there's some biblical precedent for that, right? If you read Acts 2 <laughs> or Acts 4, it's exactly what they were doing. Just a little bit, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that community of care that actually, when people need each other, then they act together. Yeah, but we've lost that art. And that's, again, the, the terrible boundless affluenza that we, we, we have this illusion that we need no one. Mm -hmm. But it would improve bioregional citizenship. Once we take a stand to eat from our bioregion, we begin to care much more about its health, about mm -hmm. the quality of the air, the water, the mm -hmm. soil, everything around us. So, like we pay attention more? Right. You know, we're more in the moment of recognizing mm. our surroundings. Mm. We see the beautiful complexity of the interconnected living systems required to produce good food. Yeah, we start, I guess, yeah, once we pay attention to this, it's almost like 
making a vow to lose some weight, you start realizing what you're eating for the first time. Mm. <laughs> you know, once you make a bioregional food covenant, you, we can start organizing in creative ways. We realize that the air actually does matter. The water quality does matter. You know, the, the soil content does matter. And so that you said about nitrates coming out, the effluent coming out, we become conscious of these things when we have relation locally to the farmer and to the land. We, we start organizing. One of the beautiful things that comes out of this is organizing in creative ways. Hmm. It's funny. Our laws have the Bill of Rights for individuals, and corporations have all types of rights to come in and their right to capitalism, their right to come sell something and break up a local neighborhood economy. But our communities have very few rights right now. Our towns, our cities, our counties. You know, does a town have the right to say no to pesticides? Hmm. For the Commonwealth. This idea of commonwealth in our supposed democracy, we're so individualized that we've lost the sense of commonwealth. Mm. And so what's best for seven generations or what's best for the whole community? I wonder. And there's groups like the New Mexico Coalition for Community Rights. And this group, you know, thousands of regional small groups get to adopt community bills of rights. And I think that's a growing edge of the law, you know, to encourage and assert that corporations are not above people. Mm. And declaring that all citizens of a watershed have an inalienable right to clean air and clean water. Yeah. And actually make that a legal right, that I have the right to clean air and clean water. Mm. That's a growing edge. Right. But lots of impacted communities in New Mexico, we sadly are known as the sacrifice zone of America in that mm. the nuclear bombs have been tested here. Definitely. And now nuclear waste is being stored here without our consent. Right. That you know, One landowner says it's okay in southern New Mexico and therefore... It's okay for the nation's toxic waste with no half-life of degeneration to come mm. and dwell here forever. Mm. We need to be able to say no to that. Mm. You know, it needs to be a right to say healthy water as an ecosystem is our inalienable right. Yeah. This, I mean, this really brings me back to kind of what we were talking about in the first episode of this idea of what does it mean to be naturalized a place? And part of it was mm. to take a vow to to seek what's best for the community and for the region. And another way was to act with good moral character. And this seems yeah, to be a little bit at odds with what's actually happening. Definitely. <laughs> We're trying to be in a cult of unconscious consumption and, and unbounded affluence. And Definitely. yet what we're suggesting is this humble, humble path toward a new way of life through. Now we're coming back to that secret handshake, Zach. Right? <laughs> right? The vow in the cave. The secret vow. That, that, that's where, like, when it, the big question circling back, because can a modest vow like this make any difference? Hmm. Yeah, sure it does. Like, Definitely. all of this is tied back to a personality change, to a shift of my heart. Mm -hmm. but overall, overall, this kind of vow the 25, 75, 100 food covenant, as well as the watershed way vow to do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. And then the conjuntos idea right. that we're all connected. All of this is a transformation of heart that goes against the teachings of capitalism and individual alienation and unbounded affluence. And mm. it ends up building community resilience, mm. the ability of our home region to thrive, even in the face of changes and shocks. Hmm. And yeah. I think what you said about COVID and the, the like, the empty shelf. I think what Rhino experienced in prison. Some. I think what I'm experiencing uh, uh, with the gas not coming six years ago. These are the shocks that are warning us to say your system is out of whack. Right. Yeah, Better you find know. that healthy balance. Yeah. That it wasn't 
all that we're doing is wrong, but rather where we're sourcing it, being thoughtful about it, being in a compassionate, caring community. I think the idea of a bioregional food covenant being supported by organizations that then build local capacity and infrastructure, hmm. it reduces dependency on, on everything. It's, it's really the good news of a simple living way of life that we're talking about, right? It's, Absolutely. it's good and joyful news to say, ah, I know my friend who's growing local food. I don't need to worry if the supermarket's going to close today. Right. right? right. And it brings, that brings us back to becoming a person of place. Yeah. And, you know, rooting down and, you know, joining together and throw down for our, our homeland here where we're born and raised. And, and if not, well... Well, it's just like what you said with the Taos Pueblo. Like, when they don't have something, I have something. When you don't have something, they have something. And this idea that, like, we're building a, a web of connection that focuses on relationship. And I think the the notion, too, of, of really the title of the podcast, The Path to Restoration. This this is our path to restoration. Right. And, uh, yeah, we're like Rhino said, we're barely at the beginning of it. You know, but mm. we have I have saved seed for eight or nine years for tomatoes. And these are some of the best tomatoes I've ever seen. And they, they keep growing on my land because I've taken the best seeds and, and I'm not buying new ones from Battle Creek, Michigan or Costa Mesa, mm-hmm. California. I'm, I'm growing them here in Taos, mm-hmm. you know? They're loving the land. So I think um, when you talked about community organizations, I just, I'd like to highlight just the question of, you know, at one point, I think you quoted me as saying, I was suggesting this might incite a movement yeah, And I think it really does. For the last couple of years, I've been engaged with local community organizations, the Taos Local Food Movement, mm. um, and, and a Watershed Way chapter network that includes Southern Colorado and Albu- down to Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've met people and, and we've, we've made small chapters, uh, local groups who each are finding their own way into what we call the Watershed Way. But, you know, one of my friends, one of my real inspiring heroes is Donna Detweiler in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And she has done sort of a yellow pages of local food producers. So for That's she's so done all cool. the hard work, the legwork of finding out what each local producer will sell and what they have. So you have pages and pages of resources. If you're new to this, right. you can just check out with Donna. But so she's just been a private champion that she makes a personal vow, but then her own research helps all of us. So it sounds like to me, there are avenues available to us to live this out. Like you have explained some in Taos and it probably wouldn't be super hard for me to find some here up, up here in Northern Colorado. So the idea of covenantal promise keeping that sounds like a secret society, it is. It's a countercultural society that we're talking about doing. Mm. A pre- preferential option for the local producer. Right. Mm. You know, but I think because we're coming out of covenanted traditions, you know, Rhino, I think, you know, you're coming out of covenanted family traditions yep. as well as your Catholic upbringing and, and covenanted traditions that will, I love like Naomi and Ruth, you know, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the old ways, like there's no way that Ruth should have been making promises to a spinster old lady. But she said like, where you go, I will go, mm. you know? And like you said, right now, like we're in this together, right? We're either going to get through this as a community, as a species, or we're going to die alone. So mm. we, yeah. we better support that local farmer, not just during COVID Zach, but mm. yeah. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. More and more I'm learning that every single thing is relational. I often wonder how much I miss out on 
when I neglect the natural seasons and cycles of food. What other foods have I accepted to be the imitations I find in the supermarket? Are potatoes grown nearby, in season, without the added time of shipping and storage, better than the potatoes I can buy year-round? Or what about strawberries grown in my yard? My intuition tells me that they're better and more nutritious. It seems to me there's a loss to be mourned when we accept the ways of eating a-seasonally. Eating this way requires sacrifices of flavor and community and resilience. These losses are to be lamented and then found again. Finding ways to eat more locally, it seems to me, helps us to meet most, if not all, of the criteria for naturalized citizenship in a certain place, at least when it comes to food. And it seems in accordance with a vow to do unto those downstream, as you would have those upstream do unto you. But of course, eating is just one aspect of our lives, and it comes with a corresponding reality. Eating creates waste. And what are we to do with the waste we create? What are we to do with our trash? As Todd said, the watershed way is expansive and it requires us to examine every aspect of our lives. In our next episode, which will be released on July 12th, we will examine how the watershed way invites us to consider the waste we create and how we should handle it as naturalized citizens of a place and in accordance with our most sacred vows. Prior to that release, we will hold our third live Zoom session focused on creating a robust local food web. And that will take place on July 5th at 5 p.m. Mountain Time. If you'd like to register for that session, please visit taustilt.square.site. There you can find more information about Tilt, the Taos Initiative for Life Together, and contribute to their ongoing work. I want to give a shout out to Ray Metzler for providing music for us. It's a real gift, so thanks again, Ray. And once again, my name is Zach Martinez. I've been speaking with Todd Winward and Daniel Rhino Herrera. This has been the Path to Restoration podcast. <laughs>